0: You're listening to Living Medicine, a special podcast series from the Irish Medical Organisation, which explores the lives and careers of senior figures in the medical profession. My name is Priscilla Lynch. In this episode, we're looking at the impact of the coronavirus on health services and healthcare staff in Ireland. Joining me today to discuss this is Dr. Paddy Hillary, SBR in Emergency Medicine in Limerick. Paddy, could you start by telling me a bit about your day-to-day job before the coronavirus?
1: As you said, I'm working in emergency medicine and currently in Limerick. So obviously, it's generally a very busy job. The department, as most departments are in Ireland, are generally overwhelmed in terms of the numbers of patients in the departments. And the workload is generally quite arduous, as well as being a high stress point of view from the point of view of acute medical issues, and also a high stress from the point of view of most patients when they come to the emergency department. Whether it's a a severe or non-severe medical problem... For most patients who present to the emergency department, this is one of the most stressful days of their lives. And it's usually something that most people do remember. So it's a high-stress environment in uh, on, on the normal point of view. So we're used to dealing with constant high stress. We're used to dealing with constant high volumes. And this is just a normal part and parcel of working in emergency medicine.
0: When you first heard about the coronavirus in China, it seemed all very far away, I'm sure, to you, as it did to most of us. What did you think, I suppose, back then?
1: I suppose as an emergency medicine physician and as most physicians in training, I'm always trying to keep abreast of what's going on in the international medical community. Thankfully, with the advent of free open access medical education, I get a lot of good resources to be able to access what's going on internationally. The first I heard of coronavirus was just small inklings of something going on in China. The first time I kind of try uh, seem to take it seriously as realize how bad it potentially was, was when I heard that they're building a 10,000 bed field hospital in Wuhan. And that kind of got home that, wow, if they must definitely think it's very bad in China. I hope that doesn't ever get here. From my point of view, is something that was far away that hopefully we'd never have to deal with. Like we've looked at post past outbreaks, if you're talking about either SARS or MERS or the Ebola virus, it's one of those things that as emergency medical physician, position, we kind of keep abreast of, but we never realistically expected it to come to Irish shores. So it was it was interesting to see then, as it progressed from the initial cases in China to having cases throughout you know, Hong Kong and different places in the Far East, to then having cases in Italy. And it was really when there was a moment I remember sitting watching the television during a break and seeing uh, coverage of what was going on in Italy. These trucks coming in, coming in, so I thought to to a city in in Italy and saying, "Wow, they're in, implementing military control. They must be getting serious at the lockdown." Uh, only to hear the comment come up on the screen that it wasn't Actually coming into lockdown, these were army trucks that had been drafted in to remove bodies from Italy, Italian hospitals because they were so overwhelmed. And uh, this is one of those moments when I realized that wow, this has hit hard, this has hit Europe, and this is going to hit Ireland. Uh, so we need to be ready for what's coming. And that was the first moment I, I suppose I got really concerned for what's going to happen to Irish healthcare systems.
0: Paddy, obviously the situation in Italy, I think, uh, brought it home a bit closer to Irish doctors and the health service about how serious the coronavirus was, hospitals were being overwhelmed, and this created a lot of fear in Ireland because... We know that in Ireland, we have less than half the European average, in fact, that among the lowest numbers of ICU beds in Europe and that we operate at full capacity in, in normal times. So obviously for you and your colleagues, this was a quite a frightening time, I imagine, as you began preparations to try and deal with the potential surge of COVID-19.
1: Uh, most definitely, and I, I think there was generally a good acknowledgement by the medical community in Ireland that this was something that needed to be wrapped up for, and we needed to be prepared for. There was amazing uptake of uh, accessory training by our in-house colleagues. And as emergency medicine physicians, we do have a level of critical care on a daily basis. But I know that our critical care colleagues were running sessions to up- upskill all medical staff on how to run ventilators, on how to do basic ICU call, and how to be able to be assistants in case we're in a situation where we're literally drafting every member of the medical team into work as an assistant in ICU. Because there was just potential that this may be this may be a medicine in Ireland for the next number of months and that nothing else will be able to happen. So I have to say I was very impressed by how all staff took up the new roles and how they committed to the realization that that we need to be ready for this and how they took it on the chin that their normal working lives were going to disappear for at least a number of months, if not potentially long-term. So uh, we all knew that this was necessary in, in, order to mention, uh, in order to ensure that we saved as many lives as possible if the capacity issues that we foresaw came to pass. And thankfully, due to the public health measures, they weren't as severe as, we'd ho- as we as we'd worried about in hospital. But I think, had we not taken these measures and had we got hit with the uh, wave we're expecting, we would have been in serious trouble. So It's a credit to all staff with the efforts that were taken to upgrade. Also, the thing that we must look at is the amazing efforts that were created to increase the capacity in the Critical care beds, uh, as you said, we have less than half uh, the uh, OECD average of critical care beds. And there is figures being touted and people giving out about how we're not using all our ICU capacity and how this should be an argument for open up quicker. But when people were saying this, there was over two hundred and eighty beds, two hundred and eighty patients in ICU beds throughout the country. And if we look at the figures from the two thousand eighteen ICU report, there was only two hundred and fifty critical care and HDU beds listed in the country at that time. So we've managed to upgrade that number to over 450 uh, in a very short amount of time by using extra facilities. But this is um, the, the capacity that we have in this country is is overwhelmed. and it's only thankfully that we've uh, we've managed to step up secondary uh, secondary beds that we've actually managed to deal with the capacity that we needed.
0: Um, from speaking to the HSE, they admitted that they actually only had 225 ICU beds at the beginning of this year, so even lower than those figures from a couple of years ago. But they were able to literally double the capacity practically overnight in an amazing transformation for health service. But in some ways was this frustrating, I suppose, as a doctor working in emergency medicine, because for years you've been calling for increased ICU beds and general beds, and you were told that they couldn't do that. But literally within overnight, we were able to do that
1: um i i think it's both uh, as i said both definitely very frustrating but also very hopeful like the, the from an emergency medicine point of view we've uh, our big complaint has always been the fact that that we we have a functional ward set up to work as an emergency department and resource to do that but with uh, 40 to 60 admitted patients in in the ed it just makes it non-viable, and it, it's not a safe way to operate a system where you've got patients who are meant to be admitted onto a ward into the emergency department. One of the things that happened at the start of COVID due to the clearing out of, of the in-house services was that this uh, disappeared as a phenomenon. There was no patients on trolleys, uh, patients who need to be admitted were transferred straight, straight to appropriate beds, as should happen at all times. And this just shows that if the system was to engage properly, that it can actually do that. The, the, there would be a cost associated and there will, it would be difficult, but it would give people proper healthcare in the proper place. And it wouldn't have a situation where the first question that patients often ask uh, when they I need to be admitted to hospital is not when do I start treatment, but when do I get a bed? Because there's a general acknowledged fear of lying on trolley for a number of days. One of the constant fears I hear from uh, family uh, friends is that they're they would rather they were, they don't want to go to the emergency department with their family members because they're afraid of them lying on trolleys, and thankfully that wasn't a problem. With Covid. Unfortunately, this became replaced with the fear of they didn't want to go to the emergency department because they didn't want their family dying in the hands of people with that they never see their faces of, and that's the nature of this disease needing to be in full PP the whole time.
0: Speaking of which, Paddy, could you tell me a bit about how your practice of medicine changed during COVID nineteen? I think that. That includes really wearing full PPE and not being able to comfort patients by simply touching their hand during a diagnosis.
1: Most definitely. It's, it's something that medical practitioners are very aware of, but it's not maybe something that everyone in the public is aware of as much. But one of the major things about medicine is, yes, there is the science. Yes, there is the knowledge. Yes, there is the skill, but there's also the, the humanity of it. There's emergency medicine trainee. We do courses in human factors because it is well known that the human factors are one of the major things that affects uh, any patient interaction. It's uh, one of the, the, the people are much more likely to uh, trust their doctor if they understand them and think that they're being listened to. And it's very hard for a patient to get that full engagement from a doctor when they're hidden behind masks, gloves, goggles, and and gowns. It's, it's a very, uh, I know medicine's meant to be sterile, but the interaction isn't, and this has definitely made the our, our patient-doctor interactions much more sterile and standoffish. Uh, as you said, normally uh, we would uh, try to comfort our patients as much as possible, but when you're being told to stand at a distance and full PP, it's very hard to put a comforting hand on the shoulder or give the human touches that might make people feel more uh, comfortable when they're severely ill. This is even harder for those who have certain disabilities, whether that's the problems of hearing, problems of cognition, or other problems that might make the prospect of going into a place where they can't see faces even more scary. We know that a large cohort of our patients who come to the emergency department are elder, and one thing that's very bad for Older people is having them in a situation where they don't have familiar faces, where they don't have things that they can recognize. It's bad for anyone, uh, but it's especially for someone who has, is suffering from dementia or other cognitive issues. It's extremely distressing to be in a position where they're as good as detached from reality due to everything being separated. And the simple things of usually keeping people's families in with them, uh, keeping familiar objects around so people are able to be grounded, is removed by the need to prevent spread of infection. So the, the most worrying stuff that I've seen would be stuff like the concern about when there's a patient who's elder and is dying, that their family can't come into them for risk of of either spreading or contracting COVID. I know that one of the first cases I had in this context uh, was an elderly gentleman with respiratory infection, and he was extremely unwell. We were treating him medically, and it was not confirmed to be COVID, but he had to be treated as he may be because he had respiratory symptoms. And having to try and explain this to the family members outside trying to explain that we wanted to bring them in to see him but that potentially two of them could come in and they'd have to wear full pp which is gowns, gloves, masks, goggles at all times while in with them and they wouldn't be able to touch him or give those human comforts which are one thing coming from a doctor but coming from a family member coming to see a dying relative the simple hand on the shoulder would be so much more important and that stuff unfortunately is prohibited under infection control regulations. Thank Thankfully some of these regulations have been structured to allow people who are dying or in extremists to have their relatives into them. But at the start there was talk that no one once they went into the hospital, they wouldn't be able to see any relatives. And I, I don't know how I don't know how people would continue to function in that regard because it's one thing about being sick is people need support and they need their family and loved ones. And I think as as doctors we have to try and support people to get better, but also support their mentality during that time.
0: And how has the coronavirus changed your interactions with your colleagues? It's
1: had a number of effects, some positive, some negative. The changes in work practice have been good in terms of some structures, that some things work much more fluidly, but it's also led to a level of frustration because a lot of people are doing jobs which normally wouldn't be their jobs. So as you may know, in Limerick, we're operating a streaming service, which I think is very good in terms of streaming people into potential COVID or non-COVID areas, and then to the appropriate service once they're in those areas. Unfortunately, this led to a lot of the normal emergency medicine work uh, now being done by in-house specialties, which wouldn't normally be used. And I think that has led to a certain level of frustration amongst those staff that this is a work that they normally wouldn't deal with. But it has also led to frustration amongst the emergency medicine staff because it's stuff that we trained and used to dealing with and now uh, can't because of the setup. There's also been a difference in terms of We, uh, thankfully, have started teaching again uh, recently, but for a long period, there was no access to teaching in the the hospitals because of the fear of people congregating together would be a risk of spreading it among staff. So at a time when everyone's trying to upskill and everyone's trying to learn the appropriate new techniques to deal with this pandemic, we were also told that we we weren't allowed to gather in numbers to be able to go through teaching sessions together. So it was unfortunately counterintuitive and led to... Stress uh, because people wanted to upskill, but had to had to do a lot of self directed learning, be able to get themselves up to a skill level that they could deal with things appropriately. So, it, it that did lead to a level of stress amongst uh, staff.
0: So overall, it's been a very stressful experience for both staff and for patients. And I know looking at the figures of cases diagnosed in Ireland, about a third of of all cases are actually among healthcare workers, uh, which is among the highest figures in the world. So was there a lot of fear among your colleagues, really, I suppose, about picking up the virus? I know thousands had to self-isolate while they were tested as well. So it's all been a very stressful time.
1: Uh, most definitely. Um, as with any uh, time we're in hospital, uh, doctors are at risk of uh, picking up diseases from patients. It's an unfortunate occupational hazard, but it's never quite been as acute as it has been uh, with COVID. The N95 masks or the FFP2s, which I think people have now uh, become accustomed to seeing in the media, the, the duckbill masks or the ones that are quite tight around the face and very uncomfortable to wear. Previous to this outbreak were ones that you'd wear once or twice a year, potentially, while see, well, seeing a TB patient. They were never really used apart from that for most of us in our daily practice. These have now become ubiquitous on a daily basis due to the fact that there's such a risk of spread. So that's just a shy example of how we've now had to change our, our operations to be able to use it. But This is also a factor of that, we are now afraid because um, there's a very real chance that not only will we pick it up amongst from our patients but due to the long incubation period that uh, we could pick it up off our colleagues that have been affected by a patient that's come through the department. So we have to be protective of ourselves to be able to protect our family but also to be able to protect our patients because one of the big concerns is that one of us will inadvertently pick it up and will go see a patient who is COVID negative and who might be in a higher risk category and, and unfortunately transmitted to them. As I mentioned in my article, the, one of the f- first patients that made me re- really realize that was a patient I met uh, while on a, a late shift that had been self-isolating for a month advance of the arrival of Grove in Ireland, uh, because her and her husband were high risk and came in after suffer- suffering what sounded like a, a, an anstemi, minor heart event. And uh, she needed to be kept for serial data, she needed to be loaded. Thankfully, she wasn't unwell in terms of she didn't need to go for cat lab she didn't need any immediate interventions, but we couldn't safely discharge her without proper workup due to her risk profile. And her big fear was now that she was coming to hospital, where there was loads of people around who potentially had coronavirus, and potentially were going to be spreading it around each other, and potentially going to be infecting her. And. It, home the fact that we are really potentially vectors of the disease in the hospital to patients, but also to each other. Uh, as you may know, Limerick was one of the first sites uh, to have a major outbreak in the department. And it was uh, definitely a concerning point for, for all of us when we got the text message out uh, saying, for anyone who's been in this area, please inform occupational health, because you may need to be sent off. There's been a number of outbreaks like that during this COVID and a number of hospitals throughout the country. I think it's very frustrating for those who are exposed because they might feel well and have no symptoms but be afraid that they might be bringing something home We know that they can't work because they'd be afraid that they might spread it to someone else or to another colleague. It's uh, fearful for the patient, uh, the the patient zero, the one who's become the, the case that is now spreading it to their colleagues because now they've got a guilt that they potentially made the department sick as well as knowing that they're sick themselves. And there's a potential fear then from those who remain because there's one situation where a half a team were sent out. So the, the rota had to be completely redone and people were back up to working very long hours to be able to compensate for the fact that a number of staff had been told to self-isolate despite the fact that they were well because they'd been exposed to someone with COVID. So there's a number of factors why this is extremely stressful, but. The exposure of your family members, the exposure of your colleagues, and the exposure of your patients are really the main reasons for fear, aren't There is, of course, the fear that you might get sick yourself, but for the majority of us, that that is the minor fear. The major fear is that we might make others sick.
0: So it's a very stressful situation. And I mean, doctors have been operating, I suppose, on a wartime mentality for the last few months. And thankfully, while that surge didn't overwhelm us like in Italy, what happens now? So I suppose the anxiety of expectation is still there, especially as we look towards what's going to happen in the coming months and the new requirements with social distancing. And obviously trying to deal with the huge backlog that has built up um, while services have essentially been curtailed.
1: Most definitely. And um, I, I think before this all started, we were waiting for the oncoming tsunami of uh, COVID patients. Thankfully, social distancing measures and other measures made that a manageable caseload. And we were able to deal with them in a safe manner and thankfully minimise what could have been a horrific outcome. There was still a lot of deaths and that was very unfortunate, but compared to international standards, we've done quite well. But now we have to face the reality of we have an overburdened health service that is being consistently underfunded and consistently under-resourced into a position where there's massive waiting lists for normal and emergency procedures. And now we're looking at a potential 50% capacity due to the fact that we have to allow for social distancing, that we have to allow for a deep cleaning of all departments where people are getting procedures. So we're talking about now a massive increase in even emergency waiting lists, let alone scheduled or non-urgent procedures. But so I say to anyone, the... Just because this uh, procedure has been deemed non-urgent doesn't mean that that person is waiting on it. It's not the biggest thing in their life and it's not affecting their lives majorly. So we have to look at a way that we can rebuild the health service and not just to be able to deal with COVID and survive, but to be able to make us have a functioning healthcare system. As I said earlier when you asked about whether I was disappointed or hopeful about how we managed to convert into having double the amount of ICU beds and no uh, trolley weights, the reason I was hopeful is because this is a sign that we can potentially do this going forward and that we could potentially uh, have a situation where there's no need for, for 40 people to be waiting on trolleys in every hospital on a daily basis, that we can actually have capacity in the system to deal with the expected incoming patients, that we can have a system where patients don't need to get admitted for investigations, that they can get appropriate uh, investigations as an outpatient in an appropriately timely man- manner, that it's safe to do so. The current situation where people are, invest- are admitted because then MRI w- will take two years as an outpatient but only take two weeks as an inpatient is, is farcical and so capacity could be freed up if we were to just appropriately use services so that our GP colleagues could be able to function at a proper capacity and deal with cases as an outpatient, that, uh, that patients could be seen for uh, very, a variety of disorders in the outpatients as opposed to having the only point of access being the emergency department. I'm an emergency SPR. I believe that emergency medicine is intrinsic to delivery of healthcare, but I don't believe it's the only point of access that should be there. It's become that de facto. So that, that a lot of the patients that we deal with, they do need to be admitted, but not due to necessarily emergencies, due to things that that have come to a point that they need to be sorted in the inpatient now because there's no other way to do it. But if the system was better, this could be avoided. And I think that we need to use this opportunity as we reboot the healthcare service uh, to look at how the healthcare service can can run and actually work uh, and work for the, the patients of Ireland, because we all we all will need the healthcare service at some stage. Those of us working in it want to make it workable, so that can treat patients well and provide healthcare to the people of Ireland. But it needs to be appropriately resourced to do so and needs to be structurally built in a way that isn't just responsive to short-term needs, but allows for building of long-term services that allow to prevent the mess that we've been in in the past and allow for a functioning system.
0: Often the struggles of the health service don't make the top items in the news, yet the coronavirus has dominated, um, of course, the news for the last few months. Do you think now is a good time because the public is fully aware of the importance of the health service and of its struggles? Now is a good time, really, I suppose, to push for that momentum to change things for the better.
1: I, I definitely agree that the country is in a very hard situation at the moment there's everyone is in trouble. So a, I'm not going to minimize anyone's problems in that regard. And we are going to be going through hard times as a country over the coming years. But we need to decide in that situation, if we're going to be suffering hardship, what we want from it, and what we expect that our country will provide us. I think most people would, and I think the, the last election reflected, that people feel strongly that, that healthcare is something that should be available to, to the public. And that we should have a system that's able to do that. I think now is the time when we have focus to be able for to, uh, to be able to do that. I, I don't know if you've been watching, but the trolley car numbers have been creeping steadily up over the last while, and where they were at an all-time low of zero in the majority of hospitals for a long period, they're now going up to uh, have most hospitals having a number of trolleys on a daily basis, which is scary coming into the reopening of the system. If we talk that there's now trolleys when there's no services happening in the hospital once services start to happen again things return to normal and once people are are getting interventions getting treatments they are going to be there's going to be decreased capacity in the hospitals so we need to address that capacity issue now because the real worry is that we're coming into uh, another winter and we're, there's a lot of talk about the potential second surge there's a lot of talk about what that will manifest as but Either way, we're talking about a winter in Ireland with a coronavirus potentially circulating. And if we get into a situation where we have trolleys stacked end to end in the emergency department with the beds blocked in the hospital because there's no point of egress for these patients to go to. It's going to be unsafe and there's going to be a situation where coronavirus and other viruses are spread throughout the hospital. We've talked for years about various flu outbreaks and norovirus outbreaks in hospitals due to crowding and due to the lack of ability of isolation. That's going to be exacerbated by COVID if we don't manage to address the capacity issue. But also if we don't manage to the staffing issue, because one thing that's going to become necessary, as you talked about earlier, was there uh, when someone is potentially exposed to COVID, there is now both a, a medical ethics and occupational health calling on the staff to not work due to the risk that they might spread the disease to their colleagues and their patients. Unfortunately, that led to a wide screening to a tool of screening systems, where anyone with viral symptoms has to be considered to be in that context. We're talking about coming into winter, when, fortunately, most staff in hospitals will get some level of seasonal flu, whether it's the full flu or just a runny nose or some chorizo symptoms that would be currently advising to stay off from work. And if we've got fifty percent of staff, or even ten percent of staff, yeah, having those symptoms, I don't think the system could deal with us losing that many staff on a daily basis and medical practitioners have a an unfortunate habit of being of, of being coming into work when they're ill Due to their need to treat patients, and due to the need of the system to have them there to treat patients, but if we've got a system where we're telling these people to that they need to be off work, the system will grind to a halt because we're not set up to have redundancy of ten or twenty percent. Most doctors are still working over their hours on a weekly basis. EWTD, the European Work Time Directive, was agreed in the late nineties. It was a law since the late two thousands, and we had a strike over in two thousand thirteen, and we have. Have made uh, significant inroads on getting much more reasonable errors, but. Unfortunately, there's still a large proportion of uh, doctors working more than uh, 48 hours a week. Uh, there's still a significant portion working more than 24-hour shifts. And unfortunately, there is still some working 48 or longer. And we need to make sure that, that, that the rotas are safely covered to allow for appropriate levels of staff to be on wards, to be treating patients, and to allow for potential increases in sick leave that may happen due to COVID leave being necessary to be able to take to prevent to prevent the spread of coronavirus or other viruses amongst patients.
0: That's going to require obviously a big mindset change I suppose in both the profession and among health uh, employers. If you look at sick leave uh, among healthcare professionals in Ireland, doctors take the least amount of sick leave and actually come in uh, when they are sick generally because they don't want to let their colleagues down but this is a very different situation with COVID-19 so it's likely to put further pressure on the health services and obviously burnout uh, can be contributed to by being short-staffed and pressurised. So this is obviously quite stressful i suppose facing into the winter and the mental health impact on the healthcare profession hasn't really been talked about as much as on the general public we know there's increased levels of anxiety of depression stress among the general public but obviously that's mirrored in the medical profession as well so do you think that the medical profession need to say begin to learn to say no after saying yes to everything during this pandemic just for their own mental health and to try and take much needed time off before they face into that tsunami of increased need as capacity returns?
1: Uh, most definitely. I think a lot of people forget that, uh, and this is both members of the public and members of medical patients, that doctors are humans. And um, we, I think we have an aspect on ourselves, as I said, we don't want to let the team down. We don't want to let our patients down. We don't want to leave the services needing. So most doctors go above and beyond, both in the normal practice, but also when they're ill. And that can lead to people getting sicker because they're pushing themselves too hard. They're not taking the appropriate rest. Like we have long data that shows that, that if people Take work excessive hours, they're going to have increased errors. But there are also data that shows that if they work in excess hours, they're also more likely to get sicker. The same human concerns that have affected all members of the public over the last number of months from the media scare about uh, that, the Coronavirus is going to make uh, going to ruin the country. That their family and their friends might get ill has de- definitely affected members of the uh, members of, of the medical community. Uh, but they've also got the added stress of them be working in high pressure areas with potential very sick and infectious patients. So where most members of the public are scared of pretty much anyone they see in the street who's snuffling, we're in patient in situation where we're seeing patients who who might be presenting with completely non-COVID symptoms or coming back testing positive for COVID and putting people out sick from work. So we're in a situation where we work closely with sick people. So unfortunately, there's a higher risk of getting sick. So that fear that everyone is suffering through at the moment is being accentuated amongst medical staff. But also there's then the added fear of the stress of trying to do what they can to, as you said, deal with the wartime situation that we're in at the moment. This has been a situation where we've had to learn very fast. So most of us have used uh, what downtime we have to try and re- keep up with the international uh, evolving medical information from uh, what's been published internationally. And thankfully, there's a lot of information coming out. But uh, to a degree, it's also information overload, and some of it isn't necessarily appropriate. it's trying to filter out what is correct versus what is not. So you've seen in the medical literature over the last while well, even uh, such. A, a big journal says the lancet had to retract publications that were made over covid because they realized after the fact that the data wasn't correct so if if people like the lancet are getting it wrong how can uh, any of us who are trying to keep up to with the data be expected to be getting it right the whole time so it, it, that's another level of stress in our own personal education professional education but then there's also then the the, the increased stress in work as you said earlier that the, the the person-to-person interaction has been decreased due to the fact that we're I'm encouraged not to take breaks together. It's, it's encouraged not to spend time with colleagues outside work. There's there's no education on site, so there's no time for uh, team-building exercises. There is a, very much a situation where the work practice, any of the team-orientated aspects that would allow for collegial support have largely been removed. So that, that's a, definitely another level of stress. But Then there's also the PTSD aspect that a certain number of people are bound to suffer from due to the constant exposure. Thankfully, I haven't been in that situation, but I know that there's a number of people who have been working very close with the number of extremely sick people. And uh, there's been a number of people who have... uh, who worry that they could have done differently things had the situation been set up differently. So it's not necessarily that the people acted appropriately in the resources they had with the situation that they had, but there's a concern that, that people have that they they would have liked to have done better by their patients at times. And that because unfortunately the first rule of epidemic is that we need to ensure that this that the staff are safe so that we can provide self-health care. We didn't do practice as we normally would for certain degrees. Uh, and there is going to be knock-on effects from that. Uh, and I think as doctors who want to treat our patients as well as possible, we, do, we don't want to think that we've let them down. I think that some people will suffer with that. But then there's also the personal isolation. A lot of staff have a situation where, they, where they've where they had to personally isolate outside work because they're afraid of spreading this disease to their, their loved ones. So I know we've all been on shutdown over the last number of months and it all had to stay away from our friends and family but Even for people who would be living in the same house, I know of people who've uh, separated from from their own children due to the fact that they didn't want to risk bringing this home to them. There's there's people who've moved out of their family homes because they didn't want to risk uh, bringing coronavirus home to their their elderly relatives. And this is both a personal but a financial toll for them, because although some measures were in place to give accommodation uh, for some people, this is after the fact for a number of people, and people have had to rent accommodation that they uh, hadn't bought budgeted for. So a lot of people are under both uh, psychological and financial stress from this. So there's been a number of aspects that have been incredibly challenging. And I think there will be a level of burnout on this. Well, one thing we also have to look at is there's been a large number of changes to rosters. So where people would normally work in a structured roster, this has largely been abandoned, but also leave has been largely cancelled. So I talked earlier about ewg and the importance of rest time. And I've uh, talked about leave time and that the, the this is uh, some people saying, Oh, would well, just want a couple of days off and that's not what this is about. People have been working 12-14 hour days uh, for weeks on end with potentially no ten days off and th- this is bad for their mentality, it's bad for their ability to process data, it's bad for the ability to treat patients so rest time is important yes for socialising but also for recovery and the real reason to give people leave is to make sure that they come back invigorated and able to do the job well uh, when people work for excess periods without a break they're going to they're going to burn out they're going to have less ability to work to the top of their ability they're going to have an increased risk of making errors and they're going to lose the humanity that's important in medicine i still never forget for colleagues of mine when we first started the 24 no more campaign that just that on t- talking telling about how on the 36 hour uh, 36th hour of a shift how someone came out the med stuff and they just didn't care it wasn't that they weren't good people, it wasn't that they weren't good doctors. It's just when they're that exhausted, it's very hard to emotionally care for someone's needs appropriately when they're just just need sleep.
0: So it's clear that the, the pandemic has had a massive impact both on the way health services operate and on healthcare staff themselves in Ireland. And as you mentioned there, there is a need now to support healthcare staff who've stepped up to the plate during this pandemic and to give them the support that they need to continue to do their work and all the work that faces them. And for doctors themselves to take that time out now and to try and relax and get back to some sense of normality you know, going forward. So what would your message be to your colleagues listening?
1: I think there has to be two major messages. Uh, one is uh, take care of yourselves, and the other is take care of your colleagues. But this also comes back to a systemic point of view. We need enough staff so that we can, uh, we can do that. We need enough staff in the system that we can reasonably step back and take time to recover without the overwhelming burden of the fact that we're denying some potential care. The system needs to be built better so that there is not as need for people to work fourteen days in a row without a break, because that's just what's necessary. We shouldn't have consultants worried about whether they need to cover weekend clinics because we need capacity in the service. There should just be enough specialists in this country to be able to deal with that. But that's really what the government has to step up the plate to do and employ enough staff to make the system viable, so that we can provide top tier uh, healthcare to all those who need it without a need for the lives of those providing to suffer to be able to provide
0: it. And even though it has been very difficult, there has been some very positive learnings um, to come from this pandemic to show how we can change services, how things can be done, and how creative thinking can help as well, um, such as the increased use of telemedicine. And overnight, GPs got access to e-prescribing and were able to get rid of dot matrix printers hopefully forever. So (laughs) can we take those positives, really, and try and apply them across the system?
1: Definitely, Uh, and I think that the level of innovation that's been uh, promoted during this uh, pandemic is fantastic, and there is a lot of positives. The, uh, the medical community in general is very proactive. They, they want to improve things. They want to make the system work better. And that needs to be supported. There is a lot of defunct systems, which are the just the way we work, because it's the only way that we have. But I, I know that since I've started, I've been calling for an integrated computer system. And I've been told since I started as a doctor that this was coming, but it, there's no, still no sign of it. There's a lot of, of technological advances that can make uh, healthcare in this country work better, both for doctors, but also for patients. The biggest frustration a lot of patients get when they come into the emergency department is uh, when we ask them for the medications, they like, oh, go, sure, you have it all on file. And they literally realize that the only file I get when a patient comes into the department are the printout from, of their OBS uh, that the nurses have done a triage. I don't get any big list. I don't get access to uh, their centralized database of their healthcare issues. Most patients really see this as as self-evident that, of course, when you're potentially the department, there should be some way to re- access these records that's uh, easy to adjust. But unfortunately, there's no central system. So I think looking at best practice across the country, looking at how we can improve the systems as a whole and just acting on and investing in these things that can positively um, change how we work and positively change how we treat patients. It's a no brainer and it can potentially help a lot of patients, save a lot of lives and potentially save money if it's done right.
0: That brings us to the end of this episode of Living Medicine. My name is Priscilla Lynch and I want to thank our guest, Dr. Paddy Hillary, for spending time with us and to each of you for listening. Living Medicine will be back soon on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you.